John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1122.eco105 certificate number 12248 secret order of the double sunrise have you ever flown qantas john no, I know it's a member of the One World Alliance, <laughs> and uh, I've always wanted to, but... They've got a kangaroo on the tail. They do, the flying kangaroo. I've always wanted to. It feels like a very exotic airline to me, but I've never been to Australia, so I wouldn't have had a reason. I never have either. Our future uh, listeners probably assume, if they have the letter Q in their time, they probably assume there's always a U after it. But right. Qantas, an airline of our time, is an exception because it's an acronym for... Uh, Queensland, do you know this? Queensland, Queensland and North. It's like Northern, Northern Territories? Territories Air Service. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, famously, uh, never had an accident. Do you know? Do you know the reference here? Well, right. What, they, what 1980s movie is at a plot point that Qantas has never had an accident? Uh, Rain Man. That is correct. Yeah. Very nice. You have control of the boards. <laughs> all, all airlines have crashed at one time or another. That doesn't mean that they are not safe. Qantas. Qantas. Qantas never crashed. Qantas? Never crashed. Well, that's... Never I mean, that's going to do me a lot of good, yeah. Ray. Yeah. You see, Qantas doesn't fly to L.A. out of Cincinnati. You have got to get to Melbourne. Australia. Melbourne, Australia, in yeah. order to get the plane that flies to Los Angeles. Do you hear me? Canberra's a capital. 60.2 million population. It's very lovely features. I have always wondered, in interacting with the word Qantas, if the U is superfluous, if we all understand that Q-A-N-T-A-S is still pronounced... Qantas, then all U's after Q's are superfluous. Well, I go the other way. Like, to me, I'm like, we should not be saying Qantas. We like, should be saying Qantas? We should be saying Qantas. But when you look at it, your instinct is to say Qantas. Isn't that just because we grew up saying it? I don't know. The U apparently came with the Q. It's like the boggle square where the U is after the Q. And so from Queensland, the whole qua right. comes along. But they didn't spell it. Like, if you saw that word in, like, the Quran or whatever, you would say, ah, Qantas. Hmm, I'm not sure. I feel like QU is sort of like the AE, the E, right. the encyclopedia, where or we it don't use any, it. It makes any word grosser if you make <laughs> one of those little AE or OE things. Encyclopedia. Like the, the English will say faces instead of feces. Yeah, the and, English. And they'll say like, I think, don't they put an O in diarrhea? Like diarrhea. Diarrhea. 
Like these words are not gross enough. Let's, I had a professor. mutant letters. Uh, I had a professor that uh, insisted that you pronounce those wor- those letters like. With a different a- vowel sound we don't have? As a kind of like dual vowel sound. Some Canadian half A, half E. So he would pronounce onomatopoeia as onomatopoeia. <laughs> And he did it in class. Is he Hawaiian? He did it in pa'ia? class. Paia? My favorite kind of lava is the paia. <laughs> wow, that can't be right. Well, it can't be right, especially because this is the only person I've ever heard do it. In, but he insisted that we all do it. He wouldn't He wouldn't allow you to say onomatopoeia. The reason why I mentioned Qantas is because that's actually not true that they're 100% accident free. No, but I think it is true that they've never had a jet accident. That is correct. No fatal jet accident. And I don't think there's many airlines that can say that. No, and they're a big airline. They're a major carrier. But they've had accidents. They've had things that but no major jet crash or fatality. Like sometimes by the time they got to you, the, the, your row, they were out of the chicken. You know, yeah. they, they've had that. <laughs> I think they've probably had a couple of catastrophic decompressions where <laughs> everybody all of a sudden their hair is standing on end and they're scrambling to put an oxygen mask on their kids. Oh, is but that ev- true? But everybody survives. One of those ones where part of the plane flies off and they're like, uh, what's the closest airport? <laughs> that was, what was that, Hawaiian Airlines? Yeah, that's a Southwest yeah, flight to Hawaii. The, 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 rip, the top ripped off. You don't want, you don't want that. But no, but, I've always wanted to fly uh, Qantas. And also I, in my quest to fly all of the earliest airlines, KLM from the uh, the flag carrier of the Netherlands is the oldest continuously operating airline with the same name. Ah, interesting. And I think Qantas is in the top three or five. Well, that's what I was going to say, because Qantas started out flying, you know, airmail flights in the 20s you know, trying to prove that it could be done. Right. And most of their fatalities were planes that got shot down during World War II. <laughs> they, they lost, uh, there were 82 Qantas fatalities during World War II just due to engine trouble or the Japanese shooting the planes down. Not 82 airplanes, but 82 deaths. 82 people. Yeah, I think I it's like five or six different incidents. So the Rain Man thing is kind of a whitewash. Yeah. But I'm really interested in this one particular service that Qantas ran during World War II because it's unparalleled. It still holds an aviation record today. Hmm. In 1942, Singapore fell. Fell how? To its knees? <laughs> it fell off uh, into the Indian Ocean. It f- fell off the it list of registered of, nations? It, it used to be part of Malaysia, <laughs> and then it fell off. No, it was the greatest military disaster in British history. Uh, 80,000 troops are taken POWs. You know, this is like a strategic linchpin for the British Empire in Southeast Asia. Right. And the Japanese know that. And it just gets swarmed and, you know. How big of a city was Singapore in 1942? I mean, right now, it's an enormous city. My was family it, used to live there. It's a megalopolis. Did you live there or did your family live there and put you in an institution? It was, I was at college. So I wasn't oh. at an institution, the University of Washington here in Seattle. <laughs> but, you know, I would go visit them. And of course, you couldn't bring chewing gum. Right. You know, it's a very uh, controlled society. Um, it was still a big city. It, the population was almost a million. In, in, 1942. in 1942. Oh, wow. Population of the country. And it's a city-state. Uh, it was about 800,000. That's incredible to think that a, a city like that could fall to an invading army. It didn't happen that often. I mean, you know, Paris, I guess. But, I mean, Japan would have been truly a foreign invader. 
Right. And they must have known it was coming. I mean, everybody knows this is the hinge that the British presence in Asia is based upon. And as soon as Singapore falls, Japan pretty much has a blockade over the entire Indian Ocean. Hmm. You know, this is a time when Britain is still in India and Pakistan and Burma and Australia. You know, the a lot of the globe is the same color right. thanks to the magic of imperialism. And Australia is terrified. Sure, they're next on next to fall. What right? if what if a land invasion of Australia is next? What they don't know is that it it really never came that close to happening. The Japanese Navy thought they could do it. Japanese Navy is like, yeah, give us, you know, 30,000 men and we can take Australia. Yeah, it would be the Japanese army that would have to do the yeah, heavy lifting. The army though. weirdly is like, our numbers are more like 200,000. <laughs> we saw what happened in China. We're not interested in another massive land war. Right. So the army and Tojo blocked. And I guess this, co this constantly happened in the Japanese war effort, that the army or the navy would have some plan and just get um, blue balled by the other armed service. This is this is surprisingly true in armed services around the globe, including our own, which is that the branches of the service do not communicate and are in direct competition with one another for attention and resources and undermine one another. Like the enemy isn't ISIS. The enemy is the Navy. Right. Yeah, that's it's a weird dynamic. Now I'm thinking about our our future listeners who are probably either listening to this show from Singapore, a city of one billion people. 1 billion life forms. Where gum is still illegal. Right. They're, they have to chew hologram, <laughs> that's holographic why, gum. That's why it's the biggest city in the world, because they realized before the rest of us that it was actually chewing gum that was keeping us from achieving our highest potential. Sure, all that gross stuff on the sidewalks. So they invented a self-dissolving gum. You just tap the back of your ear and the gum in your mouth immediately <laughs> turns into its component <laughs> amino acids. We, we, I wish I was there with you, future listeners. It sounds great. Well, either that or our future listeners have no idea how how we could have ever supported even a city of a million people because they're living in, you know, isolated camps. It's possible that they're listening to us from a giant globally sized hive. Underground, a subterranean hive. A subterranean hive. As are we. I mean, we record this uh, twice a week from our granite vault True. deep in the North Cascades. True. As you know, John. True. <laughs> True. True. I'm looking out of uh, my steel porthole right now at the, at the sunrise. It's a lovely day. Um, so, uh, so Singapore falls, the British empire is back on its heels. It yes. can't now it has no control. This was the jumping off point. So they've lost control yeah, of their overseas territory. Previously, the Indian ocean was their playground. And now it's essentially a full Japanese blockade. And Australia is terrified because they're not just because they might get invaded, but because they are completely cut off from the mother country. Right. How are they going to get tea and biscuits? <laughs> where they can get tea from, well, they can't even get tea from India. Like yeah. where are they going to get anything? Like right. all they can get is what you can grow in Australia, which is emu, emu feathers and eucalyptus oil. Yeah. Koala burgers. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, so they're chewing on their koala burgers. <laughs> what they do have though is seaplanes. In 1941, the United States Congress passed the Lend-Lease Act. Mm. Now there was still, even as late as 1941, this is hard to believe, there was this massive strain of isolationism in the U.S. Nobody wanted another world war. Um, these are European problems. These are, these right. are problems that, are, that don't include America. Today, Futurelings, in our era, we love sequels, but nobody wanted World War Part Two at the time. That's right. And after World War II, we decided that our mission was, in fact, to engage in every single tiny little local dispute between people and tribes. The United States always sent some advisors that always seemed to escalate into ground troops. We decided one continuous low-level 
world war was the way to go. <laughs> yeah, right now we're we're discovering in the local news in our day that we have troops in Niger, which I think most Americans weren't aware of until 10 days ago. It's always nice when you find the country on the map <laughs> after some disastrous yeah. quasi-military thing goes wrong. Did you know I was in Niger two years ago? What were you doing in Niger? I went to Niger as part of a... Um, uh, it wasn't exactly USO, it was, it, but it was a, a form of army entertainment. For the troops. Where they flew me in to perform for the troops. I want future listeners to know that John does love the troops. Whatever you've heard troops. is not true. I love the troops. He's always talking about the troops and how much he loves the troops. And I performed at the American base in Naimi, Niger, where these most recent uh, commandos departed from. I performed for commandos. Did you not perform commando? I did not perform commando. I was wearing I was wearing a full a full outfit, including long underpants. You're not Lenny Kravitz. Uh, no, that's a reference that the future will love. Futurelings in our time, there is a rock star named Lenny Kravitz, uh, and it's inexplicable to me why he continues to be a rock star. Although he has all the criteria, he's diminutive, he's fit, he's handsome. He can play the guitar. He was married to a Huxtable. I guess it makes sense that he's a rock star now that I think about it. Yeah, I, I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just, it, it, it offends me that he is. His first record was great, but uh, that one about the butterflies, fly like a butterfly into the sky. I fly above the trees, above the trees, above the trees, just like a dragonfly. You've lost me on your early... <laughs> I actually think the second record was better than the than Let Love Rule. All right, okay, I, I, I'll go that far. But by by the time he went, he, by the time he got into the to the late '90s, he had lost the plot for me. But he's famous uh, more recently for having ripped the crotch out of his pants, uh, exposing himself accidentally. Not P yeah, postponed. Not Jim Morrison style. We've run a little far afield. Right Niger back to the air. Uh, back to Quantas. we're going to leave Niger. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so because uh of this strong isolationism uh, in the united states at the time nobody wanted to be selling armaments overseas but it was clear that this was going to have to happen. Right. So there's a loophole. We're going Enter to enter FDR. President Roosevelt says we're going to we're going to let you borrow oil and tanks and planes and uh, you know armament. That's not the right word. Munitions. Munitions. What's the name for the things you shoot? Munitions. Munitions. But we're we're just going to let you borrow them. We're like a lending library. We're like the blockbuster of 
missiles. Mm -hmm. War profiteering. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, but there were a lot of conditions placed on Lend-Lease stuff. Sure. I, I assume insisted by a largely Republican isolationist Congress. Right. Um, and one of the things that uh, the British Empire got were these Catalina seaplanes. They weren't even called Catalinas back then. Um, I believe the British named them because they came from San Diego. And this was the sort of poor geographical understanding. What If you're in Britain, I guess the difference between Catalina and San Diego is not that great. Catalina Island is off the coast, or was at least before the seas rose, uh, was off the coast of It's northerly, California. right? It's, yeah, it's, it's Long it's, Beach or something? Yeah, it's closer to LA, but. Uh, so the British started calling these seaplanes Catalinas. Uh, the Australians get a hold of five of these, and uh, the military gets this crazy idea that they can fly one of these seaplanes all the way between Western Australia and Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, perhaps it's Ceylon again in your era, listeners, uh, all the way across the Indian Ocean. Ceylon is a, a, an island off the coast of India. A teardrop dripping off the coast of India. It's like a tear tattoo on, uh, on, to indicate either 10 years in prison or having killed one inmate. Who, did, who do you believe India killed to get the teardrop tattoo? Hmm, I think India... Indira Gandhi, I believe. Uh, no, I think India probably killed the lost continent of Atlantis. Or maybe the Seychelles. There actually is some uh, a, a myth that, uh, and a quasi-historical myth, I think, that India and uh, Sri Lanka used to be connected mm -hmm. by uh, like a series of shoals, like it's called Adam's Bridge, and you can still see the relics of it under the strait. That seems reasonable to me. I think it's true. In the Ramayana, Hanuman leads a monkey army across, <laughs> across Adam's Bridge to invade... Oh. To invade India. If only I could lead a monkey army. That's, I didn't even realize that's what I wanted in life. Living the dream. <laughs> only Hanuman has a monkey army. Well, now I should stipulate that the Catalina, the official designation was the PBY. Tell us more about the PBY. Well, so the John. PBY was, was uh, this was an era of flying boats. It was realized that uh, these great distances that we needed to cover via air, airplane, you couldn't do it in a single, you couldn't mostly ever do it in a single flight that exceeded the range of what airplanes could do. But flying boats could land and basically make an airport anywhere, anywhere there was water. So flying boats were very popular as very popular pieces of, I guess, munition, armament. No landing gear. Well, initially no landing gear, although later on they realized that if they put retractable landing gear in them, they became even more versatile. But the original ones were just boats. Uh -huh. And they were referred to as boats, flying Fly, boats. They called them flying boats. Yeah. And, and I think the pilots of them would refer to them as boats. Uh, so they could land and refuel from a ship. Um, and they were used uh, for anti-submarine warfare. They were used for search and rescue. I think as the war unfolded, they found more and more uses for them. They're very ungainly looking. They don't look, they're not fast. They don't look elegant. They look awkward. They're um, extremely slow in yeah. this case. Yeah, super slow. Uh, but really rugged because they're built, to, they're built to land on water. So they're built to take a lot of stress. And they can hold bombs. They have machine guns on them. I mean, they were popular among pilots and crew people. The Brazilian Air Force was using them as late as the 1980s. They're still in use uh, in our contemporary times as... Um, it's like firefighting, Firefighting, yeah, because yeah. you can fill them up with water. They, they can lift a lot of weight, which I guess is probably part of this story you're trying to this tell. Is why they got, this is why they got chosen, because they are such workhorses. The Australian Civil Aviation was, uh, authorities were really against this plan. There's no way you can get a plane all the way from Australia 
to Salem. That's 4,000 miles. Uh, you know, even today, that's that's a pretty long flight. And back then it was just unheard of because as you say, the technology was only there for short hops. Where was Perth in per historic Australia? It's on the... <laughs> <laughs> Although Australia has now moved north and collided with New Guinea, future listeners, at the time, it was on the uh, western coast of Australia. So okay. it's pretty much the closest point but it's still 4,000 miles over open water. But they had done the math and they realized that if they pulled out everything extraneous from these planes, mm -hmm. including insulation, <laughs> de-icing, you know, if you just get rid of everything. So it's like a hot rod. They've, they've, uh, they've stripped it down and, and it's now even less comfortable to fly in. But... And, it's, and it's all fuel tank now. It's 2,700 gallons of wow. fuel. And they, but you'd still have room for a few passengers and the mail, uh -huh. you know, you could put the mail on microfilm wow. and carry uh, airmail back and forth. You couldn't get much tea and biscuits on, but you could get, you know, freight, sensitive and valuable freight on there. How did this thing even manage to take off with that much gas? On it was head? pretty dicey. So they'd take off from this Air Force base on the Swan River. Uh, and th I think there were a few miles between there and the open ocean. So they'd have a few miles down this inlet from the Air Force base to Perth to try to get elevated. And I think uh, some of these pilots have said it was the kind of thing where you just had to put your feet on the instrument panel and, and pull, back. pull back on the stick as hard as you can. And there was a bridge, the Fremantle, Fremantle Bridge at the sort of the opening of the inlet, at the opening of the bay. And they would typically clear it by less than 100 feet. Uh, they would take off at 4 a.m. But uh, I think locals figured out very quickly what was going on and were just waiting for them to hit the bridge wow. one of these times. <laughs> Super big firebomb. It was all supposed to be top secret. Uh, all these pl all these uh, planes on this run to Ceylon had crews of four, you know, mm -hmm. a, a pilot, a navigator, an engineer, and a radio operator, mm -hmm. in addition to the three passengers. And none of them were allowed to tell their families. They weren't allowed to, t to even wear uniforms off base. So if they went off base to try to buy cigarettes, they would often get yelled at by shopkeepers like, no cigarettes for bludgers, you know, right. you, you need to join up. Oh, interesting. So it, they were accused of being shirkers, huh? It looked like they were draft dodgers <laughs> because they were not allowed to wear their, their uniforms off post. Uh, and this was in order to, uh, to counteract saboteurs or to stop the spread of information to the Japanese who would love to shoot these down. Sure, uh, because they're sitting ducks. You know, these things, uh, they've, they've done the math very carefully on fuel efficiency and they find out they have just enough fuel to do this if they never go above like like about a hundred knots. So it's like 125 miles an hour, I wow. think. So they're, uh, put, 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 put. yeah, it's, it's as slow as you can go. And they're flying pretty low. They're ma maintaining complete radio silence because they don't want to get spotted. Uh -huh. They are navigating by the stars. Wow. So they've got sextants and chronometers <laughs> up in the cockpit. And they're keeping an eye out for the Southern cross or whatever other weird Australian constellations you can see from there. And that's the only way they navigate. And the flight has been timed, so it, most of it takes place at night. They figure this will increase their chances of not getting spotted and shot down. So they leave every morning at 4 a.m. They leave a few, like once a week. They leave at 4 a.m. and start flying, I guess, north-northwesterly. North-northwest? Right, northwestish. Northwest, I think it would be. Probably pretty close to northwest. And the sun rises... But they're, because they're going west, they're kind of following the sun. Right. So it makes right. so it makes the uh, it makes the night longer. But the you know the sun rises and sets, and before they get to Ceylon, which would 
be as little as 27 hours and sometimes as long as 33 hours later, <laughs> the sun would have set and come up again. Wow. Which, so it would have, the sun would have, it rose in the east, it followed them across the sky, set. They're going so slow. Like if today, they went through the night. today if you were flying this uh, on the Indian Ocean, the sun would stay with you. It would stay right. whatever time it was. But they're going like 125 miles an hour. You know, they're, they're going the top speed of a Toyota Corolla. Well, what's crazy is that you can, uh, have you ever gone 125 miles in a Toyota Corolla? Yeah, that's 125 miles an hour this morning on your way here to our bunker. Um, you know, the higher you fly in an airplane, the greater fuel efficiency you have at, you can go faster on the same amount of gas, or you can go 125 miles an hour, but use less gas, the higher you fly, but they're trying to stay low to avoid detection. So they're burning gas and going slow just to, in order to stay out of the eyes of Japanese patrol. It's a, yeah, it's a worst case scenario. Um, can you imagine when was the, have you in your life ever sat in one place for 33 hours, 33 hours, sat in a chair, even if it could recline, like on your laziest ever day, did you ever not get out of your chair? I mean, I suppose that you could get up to go to the bathroom, but like sit back down for 33 hours confined. No case in which I didn't have the flu or some terrible inner ear infection or something like right. those are the only times when you're really in one place for more than 24 hours and it just ruins your life. I mean, like, this is proto astronaut behavior, right? I mean, it's, that's like a little, a little mercury capsule there. Um, there's because of, there's usually three passengers and it's usually VIPs. It's, it's dignitaries who had to get past, you know, sure. uh, high ranking officers, members of parliament, maybe star journalists or whatever. So there's no empty seats. So when somebody needed to take a nap, they would have to go lie down on the petrol tanks and have some incredibly uncomfortable nap on a little rug. Uh, the it's not insulated, so it was cold and incredibly noisy right. in there. One of the pilots said that at first, they, when the flights first started, they didn't even have room for a hot plate or anything. So they just had a thermos of hot coffee, and that was wow. supposed to last them for 33 hours, <laughs> which, which I can't believe it actually did. Uh, they eventually did get a hot plate. And I think later in the war, they uh, they subbed in a different kind of a plane, a Liberator or something, was subbed in for the Catalina. Well, what's interesting is that the Catalina, if, if it's true that it was a Liberator, the Catalina was made by, this was during a time when there were a lot of American aircraft manufacturing companies that didn't survive to our present day. So it was made by a company called the Continental Company. Continental was the airplane manufacturer, and at the time they were as successful as Boeing or Douglas, and they made for the war basically two successful airplanes. One was the Catalina, and the other was the B-24 Liberator. So they both would have been, I don't know why it would be that the, the Continental airplanes were so good at flying long distances. But this was just unprecedented, and the remarkable thing is this was a regular air service offered by an airline. I mean, it was, it, it was used for top secret military gear and, and civilian airmail. Uh, but they still had to go, they still had to go on uh, uh, Expedia and get a ticket and, <laughs> right. and deal with, uh, deal with a gate agent. <laughs> I'm sorry, that carry on's a little too large. You're allowed only like three ounces or we, or we have to ditch in the Andaman Sea. But think about the frequent flyer miles you would get. You'd be gold status in no time. I don't know. They should award them by time elapsed. You know, you're 33 hours in a plane, but you're really only going 4,000 miles. I yeah, mean, right, right, right. Like today you couldn't get to London on that. You well, know, it's taking them 33 hours sometimes. There is no comparable flight in our day. You, if 33 hours in an airplane, you could go around the earth. 
Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com start what's the longest flight now uh, there's actually a bit of controversy uh it's uh whether you're counting in terms of distance or time the longest flight in terms of time is a Qatar Airways flight from Auckland, New Zealand to Doha, Qatar. That itinerary we all know and love. Right. You know, that- and Qatar, even for even for our future listeners, this is another instance of a name that starts with Q that does not have a U. But notice we don't say quarter. We don't say quarter. We say Qatar, although no one says Qatar. Everyone says Quatar. I feel Unless like I used educated. to say I used to say Qatar, but then I it's is it closer to Qatar? Everyone says Qatar on CNN. I think it is Qatar. That is that that's how it's pronounced. But I think most people in the English world who aren't also saying France and <laughs> Espana. I was in Nicaragua. Are saying the other dia are saying Qatar just because Qatar just doesn't. It's, it's, it doesn't it's, ring out in English. It's a case where the more authentic pronunciation actually sounds like a, a dumb redneck way to say it. Right. I'm going to Cutter. Right. Like but in, Cutter sounds like a chain restaurant. So I'm going to go to Cutter's and get the fried onions. Cutter is how it's, it's, I think that's what educated people are now saying. But I think educated people in the 1930s also said France. <laughs> and then as time went on, we realized that France is what it's called. And let's all just call it France. So Qatar, you I think, think we're going to settle down once the honeymoon period of Qatar wears off. We're going to go back to saying Qatar. Well, I think so. I mean, because Qatar was not on anybody's radar until this airline, Qatar Air. It was not on anybody's radar or rudder. <laughs> so we have Qantas, an airline QA, flying to Oh, no, no, no. This is it now. We're this talking is now about Qatar now. Airways. Qantas, I believe, does not fly to Quarter. <laughs> I bet Qantas flies to Qatar. Qantas Qatar. should fly to Qatar just for, just for yucks. <laughs> so that flight uh, on the reverse back to Qatar is, uh, because of the headwinds, is 17 and a half hours. From New Zealand to... And so you can fly anywhere between any two points in the world that, that have a current flight. You could fly from San Francisco to, to Johannesburg in under 17 hours, if there is a LA to Johannesburg, let's yeah. say, flight. The longest in distance right now is uh, an Air India flight from Delhi to San Francisco. They used to go over the pole, but now they go over the Pacific because there's tailwinds and it's more fuel efficient. And that's like 9,300 miles. So that flight is twice the length of the double sunrise flights, but it's uh, even the Auckland Doha flight, is about, it's about half the time huh. because you're not going. So that India to San Francisco flight is how long in the air? Uh, it's a little less. I think it's like no more than 15 or 16 hours. So I've done that much time in the air. I went from Djibouti to Qatar slash Qatar 
and then from there to New York, and then from there to Seattle with very little layover in the aircraft. So I was looking at 18 hours in the air, and it really is a brutal experience to be on an airplane, even getting up to stretch your legs and going to the bathroom and getting hot food. Sure. To imagine 33 hours on a plane, it really would be like- a cold plane with a thermos. With like those radial engines just, I mean, you, you can plug your ears with as much stuff as you want. Those radial engines are vibrating your teeth. Right. And the person behind you has the equivalent of one of those things that makes the seats not recline, probably. Because <laughs> it's a giant tank of gas. <laughs> exactly. So was this experiment, or was the, it's not an experiment, was this, did it successfully, because it was secret, it couldn't be used as a propaganda victory to buoy the spirits of the Australians. Right. It wasn't like, we did it again, right under the noses of the Japanese. So like, they, like so many great, uh, great, you know, military intelligence <laughs> achievements, nobody was allowed to know. So everyone in Australia still believed that they were isolated and basically invasion was imminent. But the mail was getting through. Um Somehow the secret mail was getting through. Right. Uh, they did 271 crossings over the course of the war. Wow. Carrying a total of 114,000 pounds of microfilmed mail. Can you imagine the guy whose job is just to photograph all these letters into little tiny micro dots, but way less on a, so you can get a, more of them on a Catalina in a bag. Right. And what were, what, what was in those letters? Dear sirs. <laughs> <laughs> so you may already be a winner. I hereby resign my commission. Yeah, I assume it's a serviceman's letters home, but it's also, you know, all these Australians, you know, they all had family in the in yeah, Europe they, unless they were unless they, they were descendants of prisoners. They couldn't be sending those letters because it would be secret. They wouldn't be allowed to know that they could send those letters. So it had to be other stuff. It couldn't it had to be military you think it's all diplomatic yeah. pouch stuff. Yeah. yeah had maybe to. they send maybe they sent all the civilian letters over but then they like uh, just held them in a room for a couple of weeks. So the timeline would be more plausible. Because I suppose from Perth to, say, Madagascar, you could run a ship. Ships it, must have still been getting through. Yeah, it's despite not like the, the Japanese had, like, complete dominance of the Indian Ocean. Australia wasn't under a dome, like in a <laughs> Stephen King book. Right. But uh, there were a lot of difficulties. But this was successful enough, and I mean a testament to the, again, the PBY Catalina, that it could do this work and survive this. Not a single one ever shut down. I think they had a few cases where they had to uh, do part of the trip on one engine, uh, but every single flight made it through. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Uh, after the war, I think in accordance with the terms, they had to ditch the Catalinas somewhere, you know, in the Coral Sea, somewhere off the Australian coast. This was the this was part of this Lend-Lease deal where they, they got these planes... But at the end of the war, they couldn't keep them and repurpose them and continue to use them. They had to sink them. Yeah, they had to. It's like a version of Blockbuster where you have to then record over the tape with infomercials. That infuriates me, uh, and I imagine it probably infuriated the the pilots at the time, who almost certainly had developed romantic relationships with these planes. It is weird when they give the planes women's names, huh? Well, because you're sitting in that, your seat is vibrating for 33 hours. <laughs> you're it's pulling like, back on that stick like, while your seat vibrates. <laughs> oh, my darling, Betty Betty Lou. But I mean, you know, I've uh, my dad had airplanes growing up, and you develop emotional attachments to them, even when you call them by a number. We had, we had a plane uh, whose tail number was 634 Mike Alpha, and I still remember Mike Alpha very fondly. We didn't even give it a woman's name. You called it Mike. We call it Mike Alpha. Mike Alpha. Yeah. It's like a little, it's like your robot housekeeper kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. 
Mike Alpha. And I, who knows where 634 Mike Alpha is today. I bet you she'll continue to fly. She, he will continue to fly. Does Mike prefer the pronoun she, even though M is, M is Mike in the I NATO think, alphabet? I think Mike prefers the pronoun they. I see. Uh-huh. They, they will, will continue to fly. <laughs> Mike Alpha and Beta and Gamma, all the Mikes. <laughs> they're out there. The, uh, the passengers aboard these flights always got a very nicely made certificate. Uh, it's got a picture of a, of a Catalina in the center between two suns. So the Catalina is, is superimposed over like a star field showing the constellations of the Southern sky, uh, with a sun, both at the left and the right. And at the bottom, it says, this is to certify that blank has spent more than 24 hours continuously in the air on a regular air service, thus entitling him or her, I guess. Or well, I, there probably weren't any hers that ever made the flight. Uh, there the was time. one British MP uh, who was a woman who made the flight. Oh, and maybe is. if Mike Alpha was there, you know, they, they probably they had would to, prefer they. They probably had to cross him off of the certificate and write her. I feel like back then was the time when women would just go by him and they'd have to suck it up. Like, yes, that's right. That's the pronoun for women too, I guess. Uh, either that or every single one of those certificates was completely handwritten in it with a, <laughs> with a quill pen. They, they look very nice. Thus entitling him or her to membership in the rare and secret order of the double sunrise and the elevated order of the longest hop. Even back then, Qantas loves their kangaroo imagery, I guess. (laughs) Do any of these certificates survive? Yeah, uh, people still have them. In Australia, this is a big part of Qantas lore. I mean, there are only 230 whatever certificates. Only 200, well, 271 crossings with an average of three passengers each. Oh, okay. So, So, uh, you know, 700, 800 Maybe a a thousand if you include all the pilots and stuff. I don't know if the pilots got certificates. Look, if I were a pilot on that flight and I didn't get a certificate, You'd want one each time? No, but one, like a big one. I'd want a bigger one that had a big gold seal on it. Like the giant checks? <laughs> the, ceremonial like the, checks. It's the ceremonial checks they were microfilming and uh, and putting aboard the plane. So these are not, they're obviously like unobtainium. You couldn't buy one of these at auction. These certificates? I would. Yeah, I would assume it's like an Oscar statue out there. Although you can buy people's pride. old like medals of honor. Uh, so I suppose, I suppose you, you could probably find these for sale. And the record has never been surpassed, obviously. There's never been another 33-hour commercial flight. Right, why would there be? In the history. Although our flights are getting slower. Are you aware of this? Flights are getting slower. Yeah. Oh, it's a fuel efficiency Commercial flight, yeah. They, when fuel prices went up, somebody did some math and realized, hey, if we go like 580 miles an hour instead of 630. So there are actually flights today. Like there used to be a New York-Houston flight that was two and a half hours back in the 70s. And today that same flight is four hours because they're just taking you slower. And Hmm. uh, I think they're padding time so they don't come in as late as often. Oh, well, that's the other thing. I mean, they say that flights are three hours long and you get in at two hours and 10 minutes and then they want like pop a champagne bottle because they got you there so early. Yeah, we got you there early again. (laughs) (laughs) Booyah. We may be speaking to a post-aviation audience who, who marvels at the idea that we are crossing the earth uh, in a matter of hours. It's true. Or we may be speaking to futurelings who have evolved wings because that's how evolution works, uh, that you just desire something and then evolve it through evolution. As it's called in yeah, our time. That's right. Uh, yeah, they have let slip the surly bonds of Earth and they laugh at us having to climb aboard these metal clanking <laughs> things 
just to get the mail to Ceylon. Or it may be that uh, by that time, New York and Houston have both grown to the point that they now touch one another and they're one giant megalopolis. It's called Houston now. (laughs) 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 They're finally pronouncing it correctly. And that concludes Secret Order of the Double Sunrise. Entry 1122.ECO105. Certificate number 12248. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, tweets of ours are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also maintain an Instagram account, or maintained from your perspective. That's thoughtful uh, of you to use the grammatical tense that, that will make sense to them. Yeah. You're I, always thinking about the audience. What an entertainer. I currently maintain, but would have maintained, unless I became some kind of super, uh, like, immortal being, in which case I'm probably still on Instagram. Maybe it's a legacy account. Your fans are still running it. Like, I feel like today there's still oh, a Sinatra Twitter or something. So. Well, I definitely feel like I will become an AI at some point. They'll use my voice and my personality to create an AI. I may still exist as far as future things are concerned. Sure. And once you have that kind of massive computing power, you'll definitely spend a lot of it tweeting. This would this may be very confusing to future listeners who are like Who have met you. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? We have one of you in every home. I just saw the Roderick <laughs> bot on my corner. It gave me a cheery wave <laughs> as I headed up to my treehouse. Uh, anyway, if you are a time traveler, our address for email was theomnibuspodcast at gmail.com. Listeners, you know, we are in your distant past. In John Roderick's case, possibly in robot form in your living room, vacuuming right now. <laughs> but if not, you know, our corporeal entities here at this point have no idea how long our civilization is going to survive. There are days when things do look very dire. We hope that the worst will never come. But whether or not it does, we hope you are enjoying these informative looks back at periods in our history where man could not fly with gossamer dragonfly wings in our pre-evolution form. If the worst comes soon and some disaster does precede that evolution, this recording, like every recording in this series, could be our last word. But we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.